Welcome to Episode 2 of National Security, a show seeking peaceful solutions to political problems. My name's Ryan Thompson. I'm your host, and a biased, unapologetic liberal that'll need to learn a few things from the right in order to achieve our objective. Hopefully this recognition is a small step toward that achievement. Whether you can't stop talking about politics or avoid it like the plague, we all know the experience behind either position tells us peace is the most challenging accomplishment known to humanity. And considering such, this show would probably fail if you weren't listening to it now. 165 people listened to our first episode since it debuted about a month ago. The tally may still be a few hundred away from earning us mainstream rankings, but we achieved it with no marketing or advertising. You tuned in from every continent in the world, and each of you reconsidered peaceful solutions to political problems. We also had a lot of help getting the word out from folks like Zach Jackson, Gretchen Martin, Aaron Grunberg, Joan Henshaw, Patty Calderon, Leila Tegavi, and others who shared us on Facebook, as well as received a great review on iTunes. Whoever wrote it, thanks for affirming our intentions. Reliable information is our most valuable offer to keep you coming back, and why diligent research accounts for most of our time producing this show. But last month, we relied on a well-crafted character to illustrate the value of endangered refugee programs. Some of you accepted our typical Iraqi at face value, while others had good reason to be stuck on their fictional nature. In respect of your good reasoning and our integrity, I'll interview an Iraqi refugee in this episode. I met Tay Othman around 2008 in a tech support forum for CAD Software. He and I participated in many topics there over the years and became Facebook friends. It took me a year to realize his posts came from Baghdad, and eight more to find this more than trivial. So we dropped the shop talk and spent the past year coming up with something valuable for you. The catch is, it won't be obvious until we wrap, so hang tight. Tay and I have never met in person. We barely discussed anything personal prior to producing this interview. He had less than an hour to review a question list, and no time to review any that weren't on it. His participation also requires courage amidst risks I won't explore. So thank you, Tay. And here we go. Where are your parents from? We are from Iraq. I was born in Iraq and raised there and spent my first 21 years there. Do you have any siblings? Yes, I do. We are five kids. I have two sisters and two brothers. Are you the only member of your immediate family living outside Iraq at this time? I'm the only kid living in the United States. My other brother and his family, they live in Canada. And my other brother and his family, they live in Oman. What do or have your parents primarily done for a living? My dad was an agricultural engineer. He has some political backgrounds. My mom was a chemistry teacher uh, in high school. Both of them are government employees. Nothing really major uh, in terms of wealth. I'm going to guess that's kind of like the United States, where you can be a government employee, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a political family. So I want to ask you, is your family political? Like, meaning, do they talk politics at home? Yes, and actually my, my dad was uh, a Baptist till 2003. He always listened to radio after night, after midnight, and mostly he listens to British or American radio channels speaking Arabic. So uh, we are a pretty political uh, family. Uh, my mom was probably not very interested in politics, but it's life. We have to live with it. And I'm sorry, what did you say that your dad did again for a living? He's an agricultural engineer. In the 70s in Iraq, there is a huge government push towards uh, agriculture and production of uh, animal products. My dad was a government employee working in that sector. Got it. Thank you. Are your parents religious? My dad was completely not religious until probably the year 2000, like the last 10 years of his life. Uh, my mom was started becoming more religious in the early 90s. But we are still having the same religious values in a, in a family. 
obviously I'm a Muslim and my family are uh, Muslim from both sides. We respect our religion, but we're not that uh, type of um, very religious. Uh, and most Iraqis are not that type of being extreme religious people. Would you say that you and your family represent the typical Iraqi family? I think we are very typical. We're not rich. We're not poor. Fortunately, um, you know, my mom was a superwoman. We're able to raise five kids and make them all successful. I really admire her. Until now, she's very active in the local community there. Their main goal for them is to have uh, really successful and well-educated kids. It's probably most people think like that. And when you said that maybe at different points, either your mom or your dad at, at some point in their life became more religious, it also sounded like you were trying to distinguish that by saying, uh, even so, they weren't necessarily devout or orthodox. Am I understanding that correctly? I think with my family, we, we are more tied to human approach to religion instead of following it to the letter. And I think it's the way Iraq changed from the 70s when it was a very secular country. And because of wars, people start returning to the thoughts of God to protect. Uh, you know, we lived, you know, people, uh, sorry, people in the 80s were trying to um, reestablish their religious beliefs because there is a lot of death was happening in the country. And same what happened with the 90s when there is a lot of uh, death and poverty. So uh, people found religion is the way they can uh, reestablish their hopes. I can say that. Where are you now? I work in San Francisco, and it's a good place to live in. I, I really like it. I'm really happy to call this place home. What is the Iraqi community like in San Francisco? Our community is very limited. Most of them are um, in San Diego, in uh, Michigan. And I can say in these neighborhoods, most, most of them are Christians. Most Muslims I know are people who I know through the immigration program or like people who I met, they're originally from Iraq and technically mostly they're from Baghdad. They are, I can say, most of my network in that category, but I think I'm pretty isolated from my community a little bit, you know, because of uh, work commitments. It's less than half of my network here are Muslims and most of them are from Iraq because we all came together. And by the way, did you say that many of the Iraqis that you encounter are Christian? Oh, yeah. Actually, probably half the Iraqis I know are Christians. Okay, so let me recap for a moment. You were born to native Iraqi, politically active, Muslim parents. Your father was a Baathist, you're Muslim, and you live in the U.S. Yes, it's true. Okay, now, last episode, I mentioned Iraq's effectively been in a state of perpetual war for at least 37 years. Now, we can simply confirm this by checking the record, but I want to know from you whether it felt like that living there. So, I can say we never had peace in the last 37 years, and probably even before that, because the political atmosphere was very chaotic. What times of your life did you feel safe and happy living in Iraq? I remember in 1989 when I started learning how to count numbers and I know how to start writing the date and the year. It's the year after the war that lasted for eight years. People were happy returning, especially young people uh, from the 
battlefield with all the their dreams um, open. I, I remember there is a huge boom in the music industry at that time. And uh, a lot of goods and a lot of, um, you know, openness, a lot of travel. And I remember we had a really good, you know, family vacation uh, during that summer. And I remember, I think that year was probably the best year I lived in Iraq. And I'm sorry, you said that was 1989? It was 1989. Okay, great. Yes. And, and what year were you born? I was born in 1984, Christmas. Okay, so you were five years old. Uh, probably four. Wow. Or okay. To five, yeah. So, around four or five years old, you know, is, is that pretty much the sum of the best times or or the times of feeling safe and and generally happy living in Iraq the entire time you lived there? Yeah, I think so. Were you living in Baghdad? Yeah. What was Baghdad like then? Uh, you know, tell me about the architecture, public services, uh, how people got around, you know, was there fashion, nightlife? Uh, paint a picture for us. What was day-to-day Iraq at that time as you remember it? Baghdad looks pretty modern, especially the, the um, new development that started after the 50s in modernism. And Baghdad University was uh, designed by Walter Grovius. Uh, nightlife was pretty active, and people are in the streets even after midnight. Restaurants usually stays open till 4 a.m. in the morning. You know, if you look at the 80s in the United States, it's pretty close to the 80s there. It's all these colorful, you know, baggy clothing. Still the same thing. Um, and actually, it's easy for everybody to check, you know, to check just you know, just type Rocky Concert in YouTube in 1970 and you get um, the fashion and the style. That's interesting. Now, I want to focus on a couple of parallels here. What about Sharia law or Wahhabism? How did these fit in with the country's government and society at that time? This is this is a social thing. It's not, uh, you know, government, like the law doesn't even talk about it. Um, definitely what you see, like the uh, veils or hijab or what you call it, it's not mandatory in the country. We have casinos, alcohol is permitted. What's repressive towards men or women, and mostly towards women, is the traditions. The modernity, or like the modern movement, entered Iraq in the 20s and the 30s. And not everybody was willing to accept it because uh, it was, uh, again, a very radical change imposed by the uh, British invasion. So it's very likely that... Um, it was uh, a change that not welcomed by everybody. Now, this is, <clears throat> this is an interesting point that I wouldn't mind dwelling on in future episodes. Some aspects of human rights or social freedoms in Iraq were introduced by the British as a result of an invasion. Yeah, but at, um, at a bad cost. Yeah. I mean, that invasion... Right, I get it. Yeah. And by the way, to clarify, that that's what I'm saying is intriguing because it brings up a lot of questions about why certain factions of the general public would want to resist those things, even if they might have a positive benefit. I believe that invasions or uh, any change that is uh, not planned properly and not done by uh, very clear steps it's a disaster. And maybe it will bring some benefits, but these benefits are really diminished by the, you know, the effects 
that are really bad to the societies. Right. And uh, is there anything else you want to share about the golden era of your life living in Iraq? Um, my parents' house is uh, like a 10,000 square foot yard, which is probably a quarter of an acre. Was built in the seventies. You know, streets are open, and uh, you know that time, sewer system was working, telephone systems. There is no uh, military uh, feel in the street. Everything looked peaceful. So, but I'm sure when it comes to politics and dictatorship, it's probably not the best. You know, the best time. But at that point, I was lucky to be. You know, uh, just uh, just a kid. So pretty much from that point on, is where things changed. Yeah. I remember in 1990 when Iraq invaded Kuwait, I I had bad feeling. And I remember that day when just things didn't look right to me. And I don't know what's happening, but I feel people around me around me were like really afraid and uh, worried about the future. What do you know of Iraq's history before you were born, like between 1920 to around 1963. My understanding is the UK initially ruled Iraq directly, then indirectly through a monarchy that they had established. Um, the British military occupied Iraq throughout that period, and the entire economy operated under Britain's exclusive right to all of Iraq's oil. Am I understanding that correctly? And whether or not I am, shed some light on it for us if you can. Yeah, so, um, you know, before 1920, Iraq was actually three states, the state of Mosul, the state of Baghdad, and the state of Basra. Now, the Arabic Revolution, which is started by um, Sheriff Hussein, he started from Mecca, but his kids are, like, they are called the Hashemites, which is currently uh, King Abdullah of Jordan is part of them. He is his grandson, or like a grand-grandson. So they promised him and his kids to have one Arabic nation under the rule of his son, which is, I think his name was Abdullah. But that didn't happen. And instead, they gave him Jordan and Iraq. And they didn't give him Syria. And actually, Syria went to the French. And uh, all that chaos started. Do you believe the British did actually create many of the country borders in the Middle East? Oh, yeah. British and French. Yeah. And when when was that done? This is after the First World War. Okay. So this would be right before 1920. That was in the uh, Saxe-Pico. I think it's 1916. Right. So, so effectively, in a way, what Lawrence of Arabia promised didn't actually happen. Yeah. Got it. Nothing happened. Right. Mm-hmm. But one thing, just to, to be clear, that we can say is fact, that you can confirm with your understanding of your own country's history and people, is that from 1920 to around 1963, one way or another, the country was wholly controlled or governed by the U.K., so you were born during the Iran-Iraq war, but you probably don't remember much of it directly. Um, do you think that anything culturally may have served as one of the causes of the war? For one thing, I, you know, I wasn't born at that time, but it seems that the two regimes, the Iran regime, which is a um, very diehard religious regime, versus Saddam, which is a nationalist so I know in uh, 1980, Saddam deported Iraqis who are from Iranian origin for the purpose of national security. And that was used uh, really in a bad way to discriminate against a lot of people. Those people, I know they are victims of uh, a lot of 
discrimination. So you're saying that these people were actually born in Iraq? Yeah, I can say most of them. And they're Iraqis, they're Iraqi citizens, and they're part of the the social fabric. Um, you know, there's a political party that tried to attack his prime minister at that time. He was visiting a university and some uh, grenades were thrown at him and a uh, few people were dead. So few people did, um, you know, a terrorist attack. He blamed the whole ethnic group. And, and what, what group was that that committed the terrorist attack? You know, those people are, I think they are now the leaders in Iraq called the Dawa Party. Those people are uh, Islamic Shiite group. They were given haven in, in Iran in the late 70s and early 80s. For them, they were trying to assassinate the leaders of the uh, Saddam's regime. And for him, he was really determined to get rid of them. What is your understanding of the United States' involvement in the Iran-Iraq war? You know, I saw a, a video of Donald Rumsfeld shaking hands with Saddam in 1984. I know for one thing that United States were providing Iraq with satellite data, but there is also claims made by the Iraqi regime saying that United States also supplying Iran with satellite data. Did either Iraq or Iran manufacture any of the weapons used in that war? I think Iraq started manufacturing in the late 80s, probably 1986 and after. I know for sure Iraq was manufacturing its own ammunition, its own, uh, you know, machine gun. When it comes to chemical weapons, probably some of it manufactured, but a lot of it is just imported. It was clear that uh, both countries used chemical weapons against each other several times, not just one or two. When it comes to tanks, I don't think Iraq ever made a tank. And the Iranian regime used American weapons collected before the, the revolution, during the, you know, the Shah, when it was an ally. Iraq was really importing weaponry from Russia and from East Europe and from uh, France. Iraq didn't use American weapon, like, or any um, like ammunition or weaponry against Iran. They don't want to use the same weapons that are used by the enemy at that time. So it was generally known by Iraqis that the United States was providing arms to Iran's military, but you don't think it was providing arms to Iraq's military, but you do think it was providing intelligence to both countries at the same time. Yeah. I think one of the strategies at that point, um, after the Iranian revolution, it's like the United States want to fight Iran indirectly. So they, don't want, they didn't want Saddam to be that powerful person. And also they, don't want, they wanted to use him against Iran. And this happens right around the same time oil interests lose their revenue from both countries. A lot of countries, including European countries, they were lending money during the Iraq-Iran war. And these were billions. I can't really relate um, the economic downturns that happened in the 70s and, and early 80s to what was happening there. And it seems the concept of energy efficiency and sustainability are all tied to the oil shakeups that were happening there. And this is why I understand now um, why the United States is trying to impose their own policies in the Middle East and try to protect their own uh, economy there. They know that anything happens there directly impact people here. How old were you when the Iran-Iraq war ended, and why do you think it ended? I was four years old, and uh, 
I don't know why, but it seems that what Iraqi government saying that by using our force, we were forcing them to accept the defeat. But I don't think this is true. Um, it seems that both countries were exhausted. The resources were just depleted. And uh, more than one million people died for no reason. So I think at that point they found, okay, we are b both losing. And, you know, the only way we can do is um, stopping the war. There's no clear winner. So moving on to the Gulf War, uh, what events did you notice leading up to that war, the Gulf War of 1991? I'm particularly interested in your opinion of causes, um, but, you know, share anything of interest. So uh, 1991, Iraq invaded Kuwait suddenly. This invasion was decided before midnight and everything was done by five in the morning. And I remember my mom saying, this is not going to happen. This is not going to end well. This is going to be uh, a problem. And I think Saddam wanted to have Kuwait, he considered that as getting the country back. But for him, it's probably mostly is triggered by economic pressure. Tension, what was happening before that? Kuwait was very intriguing. It's a really big oil country. And getting oil, it seems that this will be enough to pay off all the debt they have. Did you say that Saddam wanted to get them back? The way Saddam used it, it's actually he was saying Kuwait before the British invasion, it used to be part of Iraq. So now uh, we bring it back because we don't believe in, uh, we don't believe or respect any of the borders were set up by British. So the Gulf War comes. What was it like living through that war for you? Did you see any military action? Well, airstrikes, it was like a full day. For 43 days, I think. Yeah, 43 days. I think it was uh, January 17th, 1991, all the way to like February 20th or something. Yeah. Now, the only thing I see is airplanes and, uh, you know, fire. And it was, um, the bombs were like, the explosions were really big and scary. Um, these are like... A, severe explosions. Now, the thing is, um, and this usually happens during the night, which is probably you're trying to sleep or like you're asleep and you wake up, you know, on a big explosion. We usually open the, um, keep the windows open uh, so we won't get the blast broken. And we usually go like in the lower story, um, hide in a well-sheltered room. You know, the first day of airstrikes tar targeted the um, the infrastructure, so there's no electricity and sometimes there's no water. A lot of people, they dig, you know, wells in their backyards to get to get water. And electricity, usually there's none, so we use batteries on the radio to listen to the news. Or at that point, we use gasoline for uh, heating because the winter. And we use gas torches to keep light on. Uh, I, I, I still remember these, like... Um, sirens for when when the radar detects like uh, an air strike coming soon and these sirens are even more scary than the explosion itself i hate it and the problem is it was really close to my school it's like it's it's a siren of death you see like it's death is coming and it's it's not a good feeling and again you're, you're how old at this time i think i was yeah i was six 1991 six okay it's actually um, a week, two weeks after my, three weeks after my uh, sixth birth, birthday. 
And were you hearing these sirens, uh, you know, and these bombs every day? Oh, yeah. It's probably every hour. And actually, the thing about it, it's like it's a continuous noise because whenever they get a signal that there is airplane or a bunch of airplanes or rockets, they fire, you know, these uh, machine guns, anti-air. These are like from the 60s. They never work. They just start firing randomly in the sky. And these are really loud and generate a lot of noise. They, they throw some shells and these shells explode in the sky. So you can hear that there, these explosions are far away and they get closer and closer and closer until they're on top of your house. At that point, the imagination will kick and you feel that there's something will just fall from your roof. It's uh, at that point for, you know, you keep imagining these things like you don't, you don't know that you're alive or not. You don't know what's going to happen in the next five minutes. I mean, it's just like you hear explosions on the sky continuous. It's like a, it's like a rhythm uh, that never ends. And I remember this is, this is started during the first three, four days, but after a week, it seems the pattern started working. The U.S. airstrikes at Baghdad was starting during the sunset and stops during the sunrise. So it's overnight. I remember I was playing the, um, the front yard and I asked my mom, how many hours are remaining for the sunset? And she said, it's five hours. I said, oh, good. I have four, five more hours of play, which was, you know, I remember it, it was pretty sad. The other thing is, which really scared me, uh, before the airstrike strikes begin, and I, I, remember, I think it was like in December or November of 1990, the TV, the local TV started showing like training or like a drill about how to to deal in case of there is a nuclear attack. And I started asking my mom, it's like, what is a nuclear attack? And she said, yeah, it's a nuclear bomb. They just put it and it will, it will wipe the whole city. I said, oh, so it means that we have only two months to live. And it seems that it's not a good thought for a kid. Of course. And I remember during the first night when the airstrike started, it was a strange experience because you know, during the Iraq-Iran war, we don't have these uh, very dense airstrikes that are um, continuous overnight. So it was it was a uh, pretty interesting memories. Uh, hopefully, it won't happen to anybody else. Obviously, the only thing I can appreciate about war, whenever war happened, or like airstrikes, there are some dangerous neighborhoods and there is good neighborhoods. Dangerous neighborhoods that are close to like palaces or um, you know, command centers or uh, military uh, camps, those people usually they leave and they go and spend the, you know, the rest of the, you know, weeks or few days with their relatives. So at that point, my parents' house was in a, in a really good neighborhood. So we had like another two or three families of our relatives are there. So it was a good social event when, you, you know, for kids, we, we like to play with each other. But everything else wasn't that good. So, so for your own survival, for people's own survival, especially people who feel like they have no part in this war, there's the rationale of, well, we never know where these are going to hit. So we're just as safe in our own home as we are anywhere else. And we might as well make the best out of it and, and get together and, and try to enjoy each other's lives. The first two or three days you're scared. But after that, you know, we need to live. But like you hear a big explosion and you don't know what's happening and you have to wait till the morning to hear the news. 
Now, for the locals, um, they don't know what happened. So I remember in 1991, on February 13, I remember my mom saying, that was a really tough airstrike last night. And then we realized that uh, it was a, a bomb shelter that is probably five or probably six miles away from my parents' house. And there are... Um, uh, there are, uh, it was targeted with laser guided, uh, rockets, uh, from, I think two F-16s. There are intelligence reports that Saddam was there. Um, so they manufactured a special rocket, uh, that can drill into like a five feet of concrete. That is, um, that shelter was proof for a nuclear attack, like, or atomic bomb attack. So... A lot of locals, they go there because there's food, there is water, and there's electricity, so they can spend the night there. And yeah, 408 people uh, were dead, and they're all civilians. And they're all mostly uh, women and children. Now, that place became now, it's mostly um, a graveyard. A lot of people, they still have, you know, memories of their family there. So um, that was probably one of the hardest moments to hear about it. As far as I know, one of them was uh, in my elementary school. I don't remember him really well. Uh, but um, a lot of families were completely wiped out. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> contrarily, I remember as a teenager hearing about another side of this. And and uh, it didn't really focus at all on people. It focused on how effective and how good our bombs are and how incredible the guiding systems are. And, and it went into, you know, these descriptions of these bombs, which were called uh, GBUs. There are many different types of them. I think like GBU-12, GBU-28, something like that. But that was the story that we were hearing, unfortunately. These are pretty accurate. And the U.S. military is very capable. The problem is with intelligence. I don't know who gave them these information. And... Intelligence, you can't measure their reliability because everything is classified. When it comes to weapons, yeah, you can test it on a specific target and you can determine how valid they are. But I don't think it was a mistake, you know, a mistake by the pilot. It's a, you know, it's a problem with intelligence when they reported that site to be uh, a valid target to be, to be hit. Let's say they're right. Saddam Hussein's in that shelter. Is that good intelligence in a, in a smart military move to bomb that shelter? Uh, probably not. But I don't think I'll blame the pilot. He just got coordinates. And I don't think it's a blame for the laser-guided weapon. But I blame the people who make the decision about targeting that place, which is mostly a person who just make a decision and decided, okay, if there's anything you know goes wrong about it, we just say we got intelligence reports. At that point, it's hard to get questioned about that. Because, you know, everything is classified. So now, after the Gulf War, there are a couple of wars that ramp up between the Kurds and the Iraqi government. What do you know about these wars with the Kurds? We have Kurds in my immediate family. Those are a separate whole ethnic group that have their own language. And they are not few, they are millions of people. So what happened is British decided to subdivide them into multiple countries and give portion of it to Turkey, portion of it to Syria, portion of it to Iran, portion of it to Iraq. There is no plan. They just decided, okay, let's subdivide it between four countries and just, you know, ignore what they want. Iraq was trying to teach them Arabic. Turkey is trying to teach them Turkish. But for them, 
they are Kurdish people. They have their own Kurdish language. They don't want to be forced to learn other languages. They want, initially, a full unified nation for them. And uh, this is a probably none of the countries who control them is open to that idea. And that started in the 60s. Um, they started making parties that they want to have their own uh, nation. And they had their own militias. Personally, I think it's, although not all Iraqis are open to that idea, but I think it's it's the right. They're, they're completely separate uh, tradition and it's their right to have their own. Saddam was, um, you know, trying to give them some rights. He declared that in 1970 when he said it's their right to have their own regional leadership and it's their right to have their own uh, self-governing system for them. Now, one of his ministers told him like, but Iran and Turkey won't allow that. So other countries are not open to this idea. And they started having, you know, a lot of tension with, with Iraqi government. Now, when Iraq-Iran war happened, Kurds didn't stop demanding the rights. So they started fighting. Now, Saddam took it personally, saying that they are betraying us because we are fighting Iran. So he started fighting them and he used chemical attacks. Um, after 1991, you know, during the Gulf War, the regime was weakened. The Iraqi National Guard lost a lot of, you know, manpower and resources in Kuwait. So it was really good time for Kurds to uprise against Saddam's regime and establish their own uh, provinces. It's still happening. It's just, it's a dormant because of ISIS, but it's, uh, it's going to float again. It's the same problem that's not solved. So these wars with the Kurds, did you go over whether you were aware or not of any U.S. involvement? Uh, yes. There is an internal conflict happened between Kurdish leaders. One of them sent a message to Saddam asking for help. And, you know, Saddam responded within a few hours with his National Guard to protect the Kurds. As a result, they got like uh, three days of airstrikes. Saddam was trapped in that game. That was in 1996. So let's say about two years after those start to subside, we have another bombing campaign by the United States now with the UK in Iraq again in 1998. So what was this about? I remember that really well. I think at that point I was a teenager. You know, there is a United Nations agency to uh, monitor or discover the validity of Iraq claims that we don't have weapons of mass destruction. And uh, a lot of these people who are under United Nations were paid by the CIA to collect other information about Iraqi military. So the Iraqi regime said, you're not allowed to enter specific sites. So they went back to New York to report that, um, I think his name is Butler. Iraq is not cooperating, then they decide to give him a punishment. So that was in uh, Desert Fox. I think it was uh, probably December 14th, 1998. It was a really condensed bombing that lasts for like a few nights. I was hearing the cruise rockets just flying really low above my house. I can hear the uh, like sound of the engines. Like during the night, there's no electricity. So I go to the yard and look at the sky and I see all the stars are moving. And I asked my dad, what's that? He said, they're all satellites. They're all capturing, you know, images. And uh, yeah, it was uh, more condensed. If I'm correct about history here, at the same time, India and Pakistan were developing weapons of mass destruction, which led to them both, just days apart, I think, testing nuclear weapons. Oh yeah, I remember that. It's the same year. Also, North Korea, keep talking about it. Yes, we have, and we tested, and we're gonna, you know, this afternoon, they had a test. Iraq never said that we are going to attack the United States. 
whether with mass destruction or not. Any person in the street can tell them, probably after 1994-1993, that regime is completely exhausted. The country went into poverty that they can't even afford maintaining or even providing cleaning supplies for their uh, military equipment. It was, it was completely clear that there's nothing there. Right. The result of sanctions. Iraq, a country wholly dependent on oil exports, was prevented from around 1990 up until the 2003 invasion from exporting oil. It had no economy for that entire time. What did you feel as an effect or result of those sanctions? I think sanctions were more severe than airstrikes. With airstrikes, you know, this is something that has happened and you have to survive these terrible nights. The problem with sanctions is you know that you may die with hunger. Currency was really low. Probably 99% of the country was under poverty line. Medicine, it's hard to get. Iraq was a big importer for technology, equipment, appliances. If your TV stopped working, good luck finding an equipment there because there is no spare parts. Uh, when governments start manufacturing some uh, items like paper and pencils, all these were very low quality. Sugar, for example, when sugar was blocked, the country doesn't have enough sugar. So at that point, all desserts, all sweets, and all beverages, none of that is manufactured. One pound of sugar may be $3. One pound of beef can be like $6. My parents' income was probably $5 per month. I remember my family, we used syrup. We extract syrup from the, you know, the date fruit to use it as a sweetener. Most families, they started selling their own belongings to stay alive. If you have some jewelry, women, they start selling those for them to live. A lot of families, they started selling their own furniture. One friend, their dad, you know, just took one of the doors and took it away from the, from the wall and they just sold it. My family, we sold one of the, um, a collectible rug. We sold a few furniture uh, in order to get food. Fortunately, we, you know, we're, uh, we're raised as a very responsible kids, so we're not very demanding. Uh, but it was, it was tough on my parents. I can see that on my dad and my mom. The amount of stress was like unbearable. Crime rate tripled in like one month. There is a lot of homicides. There is a lot of thefts. You know, homes get fully cleaned up by, by criminals. Um, and probably every house was there. So people stopped going, you know, or visiting or anything. And we started using these um, metal grills around the doors and windows. And like every house became like a small bunker. <laughs> Sorry, my stomach is just not doing well. I'm hearing a lot about the sanctions impact on the people. Was it impacting the government? Well, we know that it's a way to slowly let the country corrode and the end, um, it will be just easy to take over. Now, what did that impacted Saddam himself? Probably not. It impacted probably the military because military are employees. They're people. A military general is making like $100 per month. It's obviously way below the poverty line. So at that point, you know, corruption is everywhere. Do you have any idea what the total population of the country of Iraq was in 95, maybe at the height of those sanctions? Uh, 95 was probably 23, 24 uh, because I know in, 19, in the year 2000, I think it was 30 million. So maybe 95, I can't interpolate between these two points. 1988 was 18 million. So I think it was like probably 24 million people. Okay. Here we have around 24 million people. Probably can't wait for these sanctions to end. And they do. When the U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell in 2003 
receives evidence that Iraq might be developing weapons of mass destruction. What those were, what that intelligence really was, all we know is they were never found. The time that had passed from Colin Powell being informed of this intelligence to the time the invasion was approved was four days of deliberation to arrive at the conclusion that Iraq must be attacked again. But this time it should be invaded on the ground. Do you know anything about these weapons of mass destruction or why the United States never found them? Everybody knows that there is no weapons of mass destruction. And anybody in the street can tell. It doesn't require intelligence. Corruption is getting bigger and bigger. So the whole regime was infiltrated. During the sanctions, uh, getting spies is pretty easy. Iraqi intelligence officers were working for the CIA. And at that point, the value of military leaders were getting lower and lower. Saddam was, at the end, started trusting his sons and his cousins to lead the military. Colin Paul was talking about intelligence reports. I don't know how intelligence reports are being gathered, but I know for one reason, not just the United States, but I know like countries like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and uh, other people who are, you know, against the regime, or like probably in the leading political parties in Iraq, they want to consider this as an opportunity. They, they are pushing towards U.S. invasion. So I think this is how they probably provided false information. A month or two before the invasion, the United Nations asked to um, dismantle all these rockets. There are only like 100 of them. The range is like 151 or 155 when they are tested. They said, we can stop that invasion. And I remember that time when Iraq agreed to dismantle those slowly, week by week, under the supervision of the United Nations. So we can prevent the war. Once, you know, it's done, the war started. So it, it was mostly an exa- ex- exhaustion process. They just want to have the invasion to be as slow, as easy as possible. This is what I think, because otherwise they won't talk about these rockets, because these are not weapons of mass destruction for sure. So after this is approved and when the troops are on the way, we then are informed by the President of the United States of two new objectives of this invasion, a message of shock and awe against the axis of evil and removing Saddam Hussein's regime from power. Let's start with shock and awe. Was that promise delivered on? Well, I I clearly remember the war as was yesterday. I was 18 years old. Like the two days before the war started, I was walking the streets and I saw people silently, without talking to each other, building brick walls in front of their the storefronts of their shops. There is no invasion that is started by just saying, oh, we want to invade this country. They want to say, we want to bring liberty. We need to make the world safer. So they want to impose some morale into that. And the president of the United States tried to put some of these values to make his uh, invasion uh, as honest as possible. So he said, we are liberating the Iraqi people and or there will be uh, a prosperous country. But I remember people were hopeless and they feel that they are, they can't do anything about it. It's just, this is going to happen. The war is happening and it, it will be a disaster and I don't have anything to do. Now, this is part of the people. The other part of the people were a complete disappointment for me. Uh, people were cheering for war thinking that this will bring a positive change. And from previous experiences, 
any of these catastrophes, sudden change and imposing democracy by, by force, this thing never works. Never worked before. It always ends up with a disaster. And it seems that the United States doesn't have any strategy. It's just they want to have uh, invasion. They spend all these years to weaken the Iraqi uh, government and the Iraqi army. And they just go and invade that country. Uh, Chuck and our analysts were thinking that this country will last for six months. And it lasted for only 18 days. But I remember on Friday, it was Friday, March 23rd. Maybe, it's, maybe March 21st or I think March 22nd, 2003. That was the uh, Friday night. That was like really tough airstrikes that were hitting uh, Baghdad. And I thought this is probably the biggest one I've seen in my life. I thought this is maybe something falling on my neighbors. So I tried to look to help. And it seems that one was like 20 miles away. But that one is almost throwing me away. Windows were open for sure, but everything was, like the whole, the whole house was shaking. And then discovered, I don't know what type of bomb was used, but I heard that it was in the airport. It's the first time that I saw American, you know, air fighters that are flying really low, you know, a few hundreds of feet. And it was the first time to see drones. It, it's clear, clearly visible as invasion. It's not uh, just an airstrike to give a lesson. First time to be like in Baghdad, there is Apaches. First time infrastructure wasn't targeted. Nothing was really um, targeted against civilians because they know that they are going to be here. They're going to stay for a long time. So let's stay away from, <coughs> sorry, let's stay away from civilians better for long term. Okay, so now the U.S. occupies Iraq, assassinates Saddam Hussein, and attempts to create a new government that it hopes the people will approve of. Yet amidst an overwhelmingly capable military presence, bolstered by multiple countries and a virtual non-existence of the Iraqi army at this point, the White House asks America for tens of thousands of additional troops in a 2007 State of the Union speech entitled, The New Way Forward. What challenges were U.S. troops facing if the Iraqi military was virtually non-existent at that time? The goal of that invasion is to take Saddam. That's it. They didn't plan anything after that. United States military, they don't know what's going on because they don't understand what the locals are doing. Their outreach was terrible. Uh, they don't understand the language and they rely on intelligence that coming from Washington. And Paul Bremer, he uh, dismantled the Iraqi army. It's not part of the regime. Army, it's a government agency that their goal is to protect the country. What about using current military and improve it and make it, you know, a reliable country instead of just imposing a system that designed by one person? When the army is dismantled, a lot of people who feel that they're offended and left behind find themselves, okay, I have all these military skills, where to use it? I'm going to use it to fight the American invasion. Now, the other people who tried, you know, shaping the new army are militias who are affiliated with the government that start ruling in, in 2003. And that means the Iraqi army was formed into more of a sectarian, religious-driven, ethnic-driven institution. At that point, reliability became almost zero. Those armies started doing their personal revenges against the Ba'athist people. Some of them are completely innocent. Most people who have problems or crimes under the name of the regime, they just flew the country. They went to probably Syria. Syria is a Ba'athist country, so they found its safe haven there. But the most strong group are Al-Qaeda. So they feed on chaos. 
And if you give them chaos, it's their perfect environment for them to thrive. Their leadership were trained in Afghanistan in the, you know, in the 80s. Their way of fighting was indirect using suicide bombs. Now, till that point, Iraq doesn't have violent extremism. Saddam was pretty diligent about that. So he cultivated all these security agents in every mosque. And he was collecting like weekly reports from everybody. So before 2003, there is no suicide bombing ever happened in the history of, of Iraq. First time I heard about Zarqawi, who became the leader of Al-Qaeda there. That guy came from Afghanistan at the time Iraq was invaded. They thought like, okay, this is a perfect place. It's a complete chaos. Let's go and, you know, restructure ourselves, uh, build our forces and uh, start doing fun, you know, against U.S. military and Iraqi people. And then things get start getting worse in 2004. There's no consent between all the political leaders. The government was subdivided based on ethnic groups. The Iraqi constitution was written based on racist ethnic ways. 2003 to 2007, it's probably the worst years of my life compared to when I was five. When was the first time you ever had heard about ISIS or ISIL? Probably early 2006. What happened is, it seems that Al-Qaeda was not Iraqi and their fighters are not Iraqi. They were mostly land-free. They appear everywhere. They are very movable and dynamic. Uh, it gave them strength, but at the end, it didn't give them a lot of power to influence locals to get their allegiance. At that point, they found themselves being foreigners, especially with the growing number of tribes and forces fighting them. So they tried to rebrand themselves into being Islamic State in Iraq. That was founded by Zarqawi. So they find it in a way saying that, okay, we are the country, we are the Islamic State of Iraq. And the other country that is government in, in Baghdad is just a fake government. We are the real government. So they thrived in the west part of Iraq and, you know, probably the west part of Baghdad as well. And local tribes were able to um, fight them directly. Most of them were escaped and banished to the caves between Iraq and Syria. And they waited till the revolution that happened in Syria. So the regime became weak and they found a safe haven there. You know, it's chaos again. They can get weapons from everywhere. They have access to Turkey so they can recruit people online. And they branded themselves again to be Islamic State in Iraq and Levant, which is ISIL. They built well-crafted media campaigns, scaring people. They built a reputation of blood, death, and portrayed themselves as beasts. And then they'd say, okay, let's, uh, we're good. Uh, let's go and invade Iraq. With 2,000 people, they were able to defeat a 30,000 people army without major fight. It was by using their own reputation as being bloodthirsty. And they almost invaded the whole country in a week. After Zarqawi was dead in 2006, they found themselves, okay, we need to elevate our leaders now to be Iraqis because having a non-Iraqi leader, it will work against us. And this is why they have al-Baghdadi now, so they can get more approval from people who may be affiliated with them. And now after, like, when they establish the caliphate, they don't accept calling them Islamic State in Iraq and Levant. They call themselves Islamic State. So they branded as, like, more like a global organization. For, like, a local person, if that guy was called them ISIL or ISIS, he will be executed because they don't allow any person to give them acronyms. One thing I want to touch upon before we get onto another topic is about oil and money. Here in the U.S., our Government Accountability Office in 2007 came forward with a report 
which uncovered that over a four-year war period from around 2003 to 2007 that nearly bankrupted America. Although the United States kept Iraq's oil production going after taking control of the country in 2003, there was virtually no record whatsoever of where even one of up to 300,000 oil barrels per day went, nor a record of who bought it or where the cash behind those transactions went. As far as we know, in America, the Iraqi people didn't receive any of that. Uh, did you hear of anything about this in, uh, in Iraq? Iraq was peaking at the production of oil. I can see that there is a lot of, because I worked in construction, um, post-war construction, and I see how much money was poured into these projects, not being built, but just for political reasons. The most successful project there was Jersey barriers and concrete precast uh, walls. And the whole city of Baghdad was each neighborhood on ethnic reason had a wall of concrete precast panels built around it. And there is only one point you enter and one point you exit with a checkpoint. That started probably in 2005, 2006. And this is where terrorists start using mortar shells so they can fire at each other between these walls. And a lot of innocent people and civilians were, were dead because of that. One of them is my physics teacher uh, in my high school. He was sleeping in his roof because it was summer, it was like 120 degrees, and uh, there's no electricity, no power. So he, he was hit by a mortar shell that is randomly thrown between your neighborhoods. So that was a big business. There's a lot of security contractors. I don't know if you know that, but the distance between the green zone and the Baghdad International Airport is probably 20 miles. And the taxi between these two was probably $10,000 or $25,000 one way, led by security uh, companies that are global. Contractor from UK. So the Iraqi government, a few thousands of these devices. It's a device with uh, an antenna, and you aim it at the car, and it's supposed to tell you if this car has a bomb inside it or not. It was a fake device, and how much billions of dollars were spent on that device, I don't know. And it never protected any single soul of that. A lot of contracts are being sold. So if there is a project that is for painting a school, they just sell it to a contractor that sell it to a contract, you know, and they keep subcontracting until the end. Somebody will make it for a hundred thousand uh, dinars, which probably like 50 bucks. They painted a fence, but at the end, the money was spent on that probably, you know, half a million dollars. A lot of bribery were, were there. A lot of fake projects were made for political reasons. And a lot of money went to the political parties in Iraq, and uh, they used that to recruit people or even doing crime. So it's, the whole thing was corrupt. All the money was gone, and now Iraq is facing a major deficit. And when it comes to food, so Saddam was doing is that regime was, because there's no food, you get food from the government on a monthly basis. If you have a family, five members, you get a few pounds of flour, a few pounds of tea, a few pounds of beans and these things. At that point, it's much more than what, you, what people are getting now. And just imagine, at that point, there is sanctions. Now there is no sanctions. And if you think about that, why USAID operates there, like a humanitarian organization, when you are in a country that sells you know, oil and it's very rich? It just doesn't make sense. Like Iraqi people were thinking first that the United States invaded Iraq to get their oil. Now, I, I know probably um, 
military contractors made money selling that. And it's probably this is how the war was triggered initially. A lot of people made a lot of money. I remember seeing Blackwater, why they leave their country and move to Iraq. I'm sure he's not coming to help people out. Probably he went there just to get, you know, a good fat paycheck. So Tay, at some point, you believe the best odds of having a safe life, a satisfying career, maybe building a family, would require leaving Iraq. By the way, this is one of those moments where if every listener had a mic on, I'd record us all saying, yeah. (laughs) But anyhow, one way or another, you're going to have to work with the U.S. and Iraq to get that chance, I presume. So I was uh, studying architecture. I finished the first year. I got specialty in blast-resistant concrete. And then I got a chance to work in the university uh, as an intern between the first year and second year. And I was doing drafting work, like a computer-aided design at that point. And after the war, the only projects were made was mostly post-war construction. And every U.S. Army brigade, they have a technical assistance team. And it's not a combatant group. So I got to work with TAT, but I wasn't unemployed under them. I was intern. I was doing projects for my country, not to help the military, because I'm a person who against any war or any military movement. But I had to sit with those people because I really care about, you know, my work and my country. And uh, those people are, are really brilliant people. They are engineers and they are interested in building some infrastructure or rebuilding them. For me, it was mostly I feel that work is more meaningful because I'm doing good things for the, you know, for the society. So we got these projects. Few of them, like they are mostly, you know, water treatment plants and, you know, construction of specific buildings. And we worked on that till probably between 2005, 2006. It was my last year in architecture school. So I was busy with my graduation. But during working with that, I worked on multiple uh, meaningful projects. Few of them were built. Um, not all of them. And it pays really well. Well, for me, it wasn't that much because I was an intern. It was a good doing project. And there I met with a young guy. He was in his mid-30s. And he has this entrepreneurial goals in his life. In 2006, when things were bad, he told me, he said, I want to start a company and I want you to work for me. Uh, I told him, sure. So he, he started a design-built company doing design-built projects you know, part of the uh, reconstruction process. One day he emailed me saying, I need you to leave Iraq now and go to Jordan because uh, this is where we are going to work. And for most people, it may sound like interesting idea that I'm escaping, especially 2006 was really dangerous here. But it was, it was a hard decision for me. I still give him a call and he's still making fun of me saying, I asked you to leave Iraq and does it take you a week to decide about that? So I moved there and suddenly we said, okay, there is a project. It's for U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So I did the design and the drawings. And then I made a three-minute animation about the project. And then we didn't win the project, but we made it to the short list of companies that are qualified for future projects. And we ended up working from 2007 to 2010. We were really busy doing projects for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Now, again, I was an employee I was a contractor, so four years in Jordan. And actually, when I had an interview with DHS officer, she asked me, why you're leaving Iraq? I told her, I don't see my future there. So the issue really for you was just not a single 
opportunity of interest left in the country for you to be able to develop your life. Exactly. I don't get my freedom anymore. And, you know, before the war, before the invasion, there is no political problems. Being a neutral was okay. But now it's uh, after 2003, your name can be used against you because probably your family name points to a certain ethnic group. And at that point, it may put you in danger or at least lucky if you just get discrimination. That point, it's probably the peak of depression I had in my life. Uh, I graduated from architecture school. I had a l- big hopes about, you know, building a country and suddenly I found myself, I have only three months residency in Jordan and it's a small country, four million people. One million of these four is Iraqis. Jobs, it's pretty hard to get. Residency, it's almost to get. And I know that I'm here for a temporary. I don't think I'm staying there because nothing is promising. So I'm 21 years old with no hope. It's like everything was smoke. Everything was a blur in front of me. How did you get to the United States? What was the opportunity extended for that to happen? I came through a refugee program under the UNHCR. People think that refugees are lucky. Being a refugee is just uh, very demeaning. I was born for a good family, and then I find myself uh, begging for shelter. I met a lot of people who helped me going through that path. My oldest brother, who's in Canada now, he applied for all programs to immigrate. He found that there is no future for him and his family. He cares about his kids, you know, three kids, and he really cares about their future. So he applied to almost every English-speaking country, like Australia, I think, I don't know, UK, Canada, and the United States. And when he applied to the United States, he put me as a family member. I get a sudden phone call from the International Organization of Migration, which is the agency that manages the immigration programs for the uh, United States. And they told me that I'll interview tomorrow. My, uh, my nephew and my nieces were convincing me, oh, please come with us. We're going to America. We want you. We can't live without you. And then uh, took two years without a uh, response. And my brother had a lot of travel. Uh, fortunately, I didn't have any travels. Uh, outside Jordan only once I went to Turkey and I was a student doing grad school also my name Tay is very rare in Arabic only probably three or four people in the whole Middle East have my first name I had really small amount of money but then I was able to save money for like a year later and it helped me to survive there Uh, and I prepared myself mentally in terms of architecture the industry we had and how to find a job what's the firms are there the process took me two years and That process wasn't easy for me because I don't know, am I going to finish my school or not? Am I going to buy a car or not? I want to buy a car. What to do? What's my future? What's going to happen in the next year? So I called them and they told me that because of my brother, the process is delayed. And then after a few months, my brother, he got a visa for immigration to Canada. We broke the ties and I came to the United States. I visit them probably at least once a year. How much English did you know when you arrived here? Um, Good, because I had my education there. My high school was full English school. The government, they made it as a special high school. It's a public school. Uh, It's free. All education in Iraq is free. And that was 30 miles away from my parents' house. It was very exhaustive for me, and my parents were really helpful with that. Once you got to the United States, tell me about your career history so far. You know, what was your first job and What jobs have you had after that up to your current job? 
unfortunately, when I moved, it was a complete shock for me to see that the economy was in a complete like I keep hearing the in the in the news that the U.S. economy is in a deep problem. There's a lot of people losing their jobs, but I wasn't expecting it to be that severe. I decided, okay, I need to define my skill set because for sure I can't compete against people who are graduated from all these fancy design schools. So I went to take all these certificate programs, and then it took me like six months to get a job. So. I started uh, in a contract with Gensler. I had really good five years working with them. Um, it's a really good company. I learned a lot and they helped me uh, growing really fast. People are really wonderful. Uh, they work as a family, especially I started with a small office. Uh, and then um, I need to look for a few further uh, opportunities. So I moved to a smaller company called DES Architects and Engineers. They are like architecture engineering firm. They are not as, as big. They're like 150 employees. I got a better position uh, better opportunities and probably more interesting projects. So two jobs for, so far in the United States. One is five years. The other one is just a year and a half. And I understand that you're not only a member of the American Institute of Architects, but a chairman of one of its departments. Why don't you brag to me about that for a little bit? 2010, I decided to join the American Institute of Architects. I feel isolation is not a good thing. I need to have community. And establishing a community based on ethnic or religious, it's a stagnation. It will never push me ahead. So I joined in 2010. I started going to several events, and then I find myself that I'm volunteering for the Emerging Professionals Committee. And then I find myself that I'm the chair of that group. And then I was leading the study group. When I switched my job and moved closer to the San Francisco area, I became the architect chair of the Bay Area Young Architects. People voted for me because I think to get my degree evaluated and, you know, being a complete foreigner and be able to find my way through architecture. My main goal now is mentoring uh, the young people for them to get their licensure and uh, developing their own skills and their knowledge. And I don't have a lot to give. It's just my experience in the last five years. I'm sharing it with other people. That's impressive. I'd imagine you've experienced some prejudice in America, you know, even though you're in San Francisco. Can you tell me of any instances and, and how you may have dealt with it? Three times. Um, the first one is probably envy when I completely understand there are a lot of people can't find a job when I was able to find a job. And maybe because I was cheaper. Uh, being a refugee, I was accepting any pay just to get, you know, get my life started. One person told me like, if your country was ruined by the United States, why are you here? And then the first thing I told him, I don't think it's the people or even the military who did that. I think it's a bunch of two or three people who started that. And it's not the United States only. It's a lot of countries who has interest in what happened. I got two direct racist comments. They are both from Middle Eastern countries. And they both have a problem with Islam. I'm not going to mention countries or religions, but they both try to intrigue me in a few discussions. And, you know, the only thing I tell them, I'm here for peace. If I want to be in war, why I'm here? Uh, have you ever had any dislike for Jewish or Christian people in general? My best friend currently, she was born in the United States, raised in Taiwan, studied in New Zealand, and moved back to the United States for work. She is a person who really dedicates her time for her faith. She recruited me for her company, so she's a co-worker. She's a friend. She's a study buddy. And uh, she's a sister. Well, she's Asian, Christian, 
and uh, you know I'm Arabic, I'm from Iraq, I'm a refugee. But it seems that we, we share the same values. Uh, Jewish, I had a lot of them are really helpful. I have a current coworkers, and I have past coworkers. One of them, she really helped finding my way through my network, even with my job. I'm a person who completely believes in human nature. Every place there is good and bad. There are people who can be friends or enemies. I think it's the attitude, it's the values, it's the philosophy, the way you look at the world is what shapes your network. I still believe that religion is part of each person. It's not what makes that person good or bad. There are two people, even if they belong to the same religion, they don't believe in the same thing. And this is what about humanity. It's what you give to other people. And it's what you get from other people is what makes you a human or not. Extremists, they look at these values as mathematical equation. You're either with me or against me. You're either part of us or against us. On that note, um, but looking the opposite direction, it might surprise you that I personally know a few reputably intelligent, compassionate, charitable people out there with one unusual contradiction. They believe that no matter how kind or honorable a Muslim acts over many years, they subversively prepare themselves for the possibility of having to kill non-Muslims and can do so on a second's notice without remorse. Is there anything you can tell those people in case they're listening? People think that uh, Christians and Jews are going to kill them. And this is how ISIS are referring to the war against them. Iraqi army is fighting them now in Mosul. They don't call it Iraqi army. They call it uh, the Crusader army because they believe that they are, those people are working for the Christian nation of America. Those people are going to kill them because they're just Muslims. And I feel like there is a lot of similarities in that. I know internally, you know, a lot of Christians, they believe that one day there'll be a big war between Christians and Jews. And Christians will defeat them. And a lot of Muslims, they believe in similar thing. So the thing with these religions are all of them were founded by refugees. Jesus, Moses, and Muhammad. All of them were founded by orphans. And the three of them are entrepreneurs. All of them, they started from a weak point. They built like a full enterprise. They all follow the same God. So where's the problem? I think the problem is mostly about human interpretation because anybody can take ownership of it and say, oh, I can interpret the holy book. People are lying on TV and people still believing that. What about a lie or a fact that was mentioned 2,000 years ago? People forget things easily. Last year, you became a U.S. citizen. What does that feel like? Well, it feels great. Actually, you know, you ask me about uh, what, what's best here for your life, probably in 1989. But I think I'm now living the best life. And for the first time, I feel that I have control over my destiny. And I hope this country will continue thriving because I don't want my kids to see what I saw when I was a kid. And how are your mother and siblings doing in Iraq? So my mother is in my parents' house. And, uh, you know, in her house, she built it with my dad in, in the 70s. She's living there. My sisters, both of them, uh, they have kids. Um, three kids each. My sister is a dentist. She has PhD in dentistry and she used to be a professor in University of Mosul. Now she left after the uh, ISIS control of the town. She escaped. She moved to my parents' house in Baghdad, which is safer. She is uh, partnering with a few dentists in a dental clinic. And she's also on the council of one of the uh, private universities there for like a medical school and the others 
sister is a doctor. And also, it's good that we still have a family that is intact there. I know there hasn't been a lot of time to think about this, but what is the most important thing that you can ask of or want to tell our listeners right now? Some people, the time they heard I'm a Muslim, probably they closed the podcast. Uh, the people who are continued listening to that, what I want to tell them is, I believe that we live in an ideal time. The barriers, like the distances and the age gaps and the race gaps and the gender gaps are diminishing. And I can see now um, technology has two sides. One is really good and one is really bad. And the technology is being used in a way that is um, more like a brainwashing. And the access to information is easy to people, but doesn't make them more educated. The only solution for that is to keep your minds open and ask other people to have an open mind because this is the only way me and you can defeat, you know, extreme ideas is by being open and exchange information. Now, this is what happened in the history. This is why you can see coastal cities or cities on trade lines are more open-minded and more prosperous than closed cities. You can see how cultural exchange can really help. And now it's getting faster because use of technology. I don't think we have an excuse to have a hate for the next 20 years because we can end it now. And it's pretty easy. Just connect to somebody on, online and, you know, talk and discuss. We're going to close this interview right there, but I'm going to tell you one thing that I think for the first time. And that is, if you have an open mind, and see the good in humanity. I can't see why any of the rest of us have a reason to not be able to do that. For you to be able to hold this perspective amidst your life experience, I think leaves us at least with no other responsibility as the human race to try to meet you halfway on that optimism. And it's a, it's a good time to speak up because... Being busy and um, always surrounded by work and responsibilities sometimes uh, prevents you from sharing your thoughts. And it's a good idea that we shared our thoughts. Some of you may remember that back in 2005, pictures of Iraqi women making victory signs with their ballot-stained fingers flooded American media with captions like, I voted. The war was 14 years old at that point in my life, or two years young for those counting by its many names. Amidst being well-read on politics by that point, my opinion of the war was based on a lack of attention and general distrust for our administration at the time. But these pics contradicted my suspicions with a fantasy that somehow my taxes were liberating women with democracy, and my gluttonous pride over it was preferable to feeling sad about the toll of delivering it to them. Had I paid more attention or truly cared enough about how my taxes were being spent, or had the courage to speak up about it among those who'd claim I didn't care about vets, I would have realized it wasn't normal for these Iraqi women to be covered in black and that their votes enabled the country's first Sharia constitution. The interview we just had with Tay is a turning point in my life, because it empowers us with diplomatic skills rivaling those of world leaders. I'm talking about those who, amidst consuming thousands of hours and pages of national security data from think tanks, intelligence, academia, and the press, while they have, just like us, ignored something deceptively obvious while turning thumbs up or down on propositions of war against other countries. Simply put, We've consistently decided to attack people whose voices we've never heard, if not been kept from hearing, or consciously refused to hear to avoid sadness. 
We heard the president, the general, the spook and the spin doctor, but never once did we listen or seek out the opinions of those the war primarily impacts. Everyday people, everyday families who didn't matter if there's a slight chance a political target might be sharing a public bomb shelter with them, or didn't matter if the target wasn't there. So as true diplomats, I propose we make a three-point pact between us now. If we can deliberate for decades under the auspices of our Supreme Court whether a few convicted murderers deserve capital punishment and have revealed the innocence of many from such pursuits, before agreeing to any other wars, especially any sharing names with Nazi generals like the Desert Fox, we must consider the perspectives of their typical victims. Nor shall we again accept the fact their perspective has been hidden from us all this time. Lastly, we shall realize obtaining this information may be as easy as logging into our social media accounts, plugging in keywords like location or city, clicking the pick of one that doesn't look like a politician, and potentially blowing their mind with a question. Will you be my friend? This initial, if not easy, step opens a big door. Not the one we just did together, that people matter, but another permitting us to ask the human race a question. How can we work together to peacefully solve a political problem between us? Upon whence, we'll explore new opportunities that may cost less than thousands of Americans, a million others, and a trillion dollars in less than 26 years and counting. Now, to any of you politely opting out of this pact, possibly out of concern peace as a strategy leaving our country asleep at the wheel, or that we're disguising something complex as easy, well, I don't think it's easy. You're the listener I'm most inspired to work hard for. Thanks for listening to this show, and please come back for the next one. This concludes our second episode of National Security. If you're curious or concerned about our statements and seeing the facts behind them might help, email nationalsecurity at giantsteps.us and I'll respond at a reasonable time. Any misrepresentations we learn of will be covered in the next show. Thanks for listening and have a great week.